pretty interesting that you could do things like identify cars by their Bluetooth stereo or identify police officers by their Bluetooth cameras. All these things make it pretty easy to identify the stuff that's around us once we know a little bit about the manufacturer. Hello, and welcome to the Verona Security Tools podcast. Today, we're talking to hacker Alex Lind about his creep detector project, as well as what it's like getting started with hacking when you're only in high school. So Alex, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Alex, and I'm currently in high school. A lot of what I'm doing right now revolves around personal computer science projects, like developing cool electronics. I'm doing some hackathons, CTFs, and a few programming competitions. I also have a website and a YouTube channel where I document a lot of this stuff that I'm working on so that other people can see what I've done and also like have the resources if they want to replicate my projects. So I'm also a pretty big fan of like open source and that nature. Wow. Well, that was a lot more than I was doing when it comes to hacking or computer science in high school. But I guess now that we know what you're interested in, can you tell us a little bit about the projects that you've created? Yeah. So a lot of the projects that I'm creating are to solve very specific problems for things that I want to see created that other people haven't made yet. So like, for example, a while back, I wanted to create a device for portable war driving that I could just slip in my pocket. It's completely inconspicuous. And I haven't seen anyone really make that before. So I decided to create my own. And a lot of the projects I'm working on revolve around small microcontrollers like Arduino, Raspberry Pi, ESP8266. So yeah. Well, when we originally started talking a couple years ago, I was first starting out as a writer at Nullbyte, and I noticed that you were getting into some pretty interesting things that I'd never seen before when it comes to hacking objects like calculators and just kind of whatever you had around. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got started hacking at such an early age and what about it really appeals to you? So at that time, I didn't have a lot of resources at my hands. All I had was just a calculator. I didn't even have a laptop. But once I found out that you could actually program natively on a calculator, I decided to teach myself. And soon enough, I was writing code for games and math programs that I was selling to friends. And pretty soon I started teaching myself coding. And that's pretty much how I got started. And I remember also, you were actually grafting Wi-Fi into a calculator at some point, which blew me away because I never thought that that would be useful let alone necessary for any particular reason. But I find that in the hacking community, one of the best drivers of innovation is restriction. And as someone that's still in high school, you're subjected to a lot of restrictions with the kind of hardware you can work with or the kind of permission you get to kind of work on projects at all. So why were you grafting Wi-Fi into a calculator? So my friends thought it would be an interesting proof of concept to see if we would be able to get calculators to communicate with each other across like the classroom, you know, for nefarious purposes, or maybe just <laughs> research. We thought that'd be an interesting project to work on. And that was really my first hands-on experience with microcontrollers and programming. That's pretty amazing. So starting with a calculator, you managed to get it to be able to communicate over Wi-Fi. What technical skills did you need to learn or did you need to practice in order to actually get that done? So actually GitHub, because someone already wrote USB drivers for the TI-84, which was the calculator that I was using. So I was able to just pull that and port it to my calculator. And someone also had written Wi-Fi drivers that was able to get the, the processor inside of it to communicate with USB devices. And I was able to use a Wi-Fi dongle on my calculator, which was awesome. <laughs> 
Were you able to do anything interesting with the uh, with the calculator once you got it up and running? I was able to just scan for Wi-Fi networks, and that was it. <laughs> Still, for uh, something that's just designed to do basic calculations, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you're kind of out there taking whatever you can get your hands on and just trying to hack it to do things that it's never been able to do before. But you are also not in an ideal position to pursue your own research, even though that's something you spend a lot of your time doing. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, as a young hacker, like what exactly are the barriers for you to get involved in serious research and actually start making your own stuff? Well, first off, funding, definitely, because I don't have a job. So lots of the projects that I want to work on, my only barrier is being able to get the money to complete those projects. Also, as a minor, my parents are a big part of that, too, because like they obviously want me to prioritize school over a lot of the things that I'm working on. <laughs> Integrating Wi-Fi into a calculator. <laughs> yeah. My mom wasn't very happy about that. She's like, <laughs> no, you're going to break your calculator. We're not going to buy you another one for school. <laughs> so high yeah. stakes. Yeah. Just a lot of people don't really take it seriously when you're like a kid and you say that you're into hacking or programming. So have you found that that affects your ability to maybe like learn information you need for a project or get people to pay attention to you like in a group? Yeah, like on lots of forum boards like Reddit. Like one time I posted to Reddit and I was absolutely ridiculed for asking a question about hacking when I was a beginner. Do you think that things like that make it more difficult for younger people to get involved in hacking if they're not willing to smash through those barriers like you have? Yeah, definitely. If if you don't have the drive to push past that and to just ignore those people, then I think it'd be really hard. And I don't really understand why people think it's necessary to gatekeep this community. I feel like it should be more open. Yeah, I agree. Especially for people that are trying to do something that isn't, you know, it's not sitting in your room playing video games, you're building stuff, you're actually making something that didn't exist before. Not everybody recognizes the value of that. And if there's not a clear idea of what kind of job you might get from this sort of thing, it's probably also difficult to argue to your parents that this is something you should be doing instead of school. Yeah. So on that thread, I know that it's pretty difficult in the hacker community sometimes to get your intentions across because not everybody understands what it is you're up to. You might be trying to solve a problem, but you're not experienced in the way of reporting it. So instead of a good thing, the person that you are trying to help might actually interpret you as a threat or get angry at you for messing with stuff that you shouldn't be touching. You also mentioned that people don't always take you seriously. So I'm curious, is there any times that you've actually gotten in trouble for doing something that wasn't actually hacking or or wasn't actually doing anything wrong? Yeah, plenty of times. I've actually been suspended twice in high school so far for doing that sort of thing. The earliest I can remember happened in eighth grade. So after I had taught myself programming on the calculators, I was slowly starting to pick up Python by teaching myself on the school computers. And of course, my friends were interested in this too. So they wanted me to teach them. So one day we were in the library and my friend's like, hey, could you teach me some coding? And I literally just opened up command prompt and the librarian walked by and she's like, what are you doing? Is that hacking? And then she reported me and I got like a two day suspension. A two day (laughs) suspension for trying to teach another student Python. Yes. Yep. That sounds about right. Well, I can imagine that that's pretty discouraging. A lot of people would take that as as an indication that this thing that you've done was bad and that you shouldn't do it again. What made you want to take the suspension and then come back after that and keep doing this sort of thing? It, it's just intriguing. <laughs> and I don't know, you just you just can't stop. 
I would agree with that. I think also as soon as something is placed just out of reach, especially if it's something you had access to before, it always makes it a little yeah. bit more, yeah. <laughs> more intriguing. <laughs> so maybe that maybe we owe a debt to that librarian for uh, <laughs> making yeah. hacking that much more exciting. So the result of all of this has been a series of projects that have actually gotten some attention in the hacker community, including from the people who make Kismet, which is a really popular Wi-Fi and signals intelligence tool that's widely used by the hacker community. Can you tell me a little bit about your original project, the Wi-Fi war driving skateboard? Yeah, so initially I wanted to design like a really small modular platform based around the Raspberry Pi as like a small Linux device in the form factor of a phone that I could use for reconnaissance, a portable terminal to use in the field or whatever. And then once I discovered war driving, I wanted to integrate like GPS and an actual good Wi-Fi dongle into this project I created called the Audit Pi, which is the handheld Raspberry Pi device. And then eventually I thought, wow, it'd be really cool if I could demonstrate this, you know, as a proof of concept for how inconspicuously you could gather data like by war driving. So I created a YouTube video, uh, which you can check out on my channel. It's called like War Skating with Raspberry Pi. And I started skating around the local Boeing campus behind my house. And I just was capturing data through Kismet onto the Raspberry Pi, which I could later pull up through Google Maps, or I could put it on the Wiggle database to see what kind of data that I captured. So you're just casually skating around a defense contractor's uh, campus, slurping up wireless information. What is that actually capable of seeing? I can see Wi-Fi access points in the area. I can see devices connected to them, so like client devices like cell phones, laptops, etc. I can also pick up encryption types to see like open networks that are unsecured, WEP. I can pick up unsecured printers, open Wi-Fi hotspots, all sorts of stuff. So that's really interesting. You're essentially able to, just by doing something that's pretty inconspicuous, just kind of skateboarding around as a kid, actually do a pretty advanced audit on the wireless devices of the campus of a defense contractor. (laughs) That's uh, not something the average teenager is probably up to on the typical weekend, but it's pretty cool that you can do all this stuff just from a platform that's specifically made for your use case. Like, you have a skateboard, you have the ability to skate around, like what kind of data can you pull down? With the Raspberry Pi, I'm curious, like what's the actual budget on this uh, prototype? The original that I created, the first iteration of the Audit Pi, was something under like $120, but I'm developing a more portable platform based off the ESP8266 that I think will be like under 40 bucks, and it can do war driving and everything. And it has GPS and all that? Yeah. So for people that aren't familiar, can you explain a little bit about what war driving is and why it's able to collect all this interesting information? War driving is just basically where you go around and you have a device that can capture both Wi-Fi and GPS data. So basically what it'll do is it will scan for Wi-Fi devices that are nearby you and it'll tag them to a GPS location. So later on, you can pull that data up, like in Google Maps or on the Wiggle database. And you can see where you've traveled and certain wireless devices that you spotted along that range. So the result of this is, let's say you skateboard all around your neighborhood. And when you get back home, Mm -hmm. you have a file that has basically geolocated every single broadcasting device that's using Wi-Fi. And does that include client devices like cell phones and stuff like that? Yeah, thanks to Kismet it does. And you can also see if they're associated with any network, like what they're connected to, 
And you can also pull probe frames to see what Wi-Fi networks they've connected to before. So that's pretty incredible. From the platform of a skateboard, you can not only see devices that are connected to a network and where those networks are, you can also spot disconnected phones. So if someone's just in their car or on a bus or on the street and they have their phone and the Wi-Fi is on and it's not connected to a Wi-Fi, you're saying you could skate around and log the location of that person. Yeah, yeah, you could do that. Well, that's a pretty crazy application of war driving, and it also gives you a pretty big data set to work with. You also mentioned Wiggle.net, and for people who aren't familiar with that, can you explain what the significance of Wiggle.net is? So Wiggle is a really big like open source database that's a collection of war driving data that other people have uploaded. So basically, there's literally thousands and thousands of uploads of like Kismet data and other war driving platforms that have been uploaded there. And you can literally find millions of Wi-Fi devices that people have spotted while war driving and where they're located. So you can search this too. So if you know, yeah. for example, that your friend's Wi-Fi address or the Wi-Fi Mac address is a certain Mac address, you could just search through the database and find out potentially where they lived before. If someone happened Correct. to uh, drive by their old address and they had the same router, you could also maybe see a person's device calling out for a certain network and then use that network name. And if it's uh, sufficiently unique, you could type it in and maybe look up the location of their their home or their work router just by knowing what the network name is. Yeah, you could do that. I actually was able to find my own house on WiggleNet, which is pretty scary, <laughs> using just my router Mac. So for listeners who aren't aware of this, if you go to Wiggle.net and take your home router or work router's ESSID or the, the name of the network and you type it in, if it's really unique, the odds are that someone has probably geolocated your uh, Wi-Fi network and added it to this database. Now, uh, you shouldn't be too scared because that actually happened quite some time ago. Most of the time when your phone is trying to geolocate itself, especially if you're in a big city, it, it might not have a clear line of sight and the GPS signals may bounce off buildings. So nowadays, most phones use what's called assisted GPS or AGPS in order to find their location. So in order to facilitate that, they basically turn on their Wi-Fi and scan for the closest networks and then use their data connection back to your service provider to query a database, usually taken by Google or someone else who's actually had the time to do their own war driving. And what Google does is they just include an antenna that's recording all the Wi-Fi networks while they're doing their Google Street View. So they have a built-in database of where all of these Wi-Fi networks are. So Wiggle.net is just a community effort. It's not backed by you know a big corporation that's going out and trying to war drive all this data. What's really cool is, you know, wiggle.net is accessible for everyone. So anyone is able to query it, you can do your own research on it. But really, this kind of data has been collected by companies for a very long time, because it's super useful, both for geolocation, so knowing exactly where you are in an area with a bad signal, and also just kind of knowing how to reference where you want to go. So what the expected networks in a certain area are. If, uh, let's say, you wanted to spoof, for example, a location, you could just create a bunch of Wi-Fi networks that are known to be in a different area, and you can actually get a lot of phones to suddenly think that they are you know, halfway across the world because they see Wi-Fi networks that uh, they recognize as being in a certain location, and they don't have a good GPS signal. So... A lot of what's going on here is basically like a trend in the industry to record as much data about wireless devices as possible and then use it for all sorts of interesting things. So 
If you're curious to see how much information is up on the internet about you and your Wi-Fi, I recommend you check out wiggle.net, type in your router's ESSID or the network name, and see how unique it is. See if hundreds of results come up or if yours is the only one. Because if yours is the only one, then you might want to consider changing that if it's something that's important to you. So aside from all that, we can also, again, look at client devices. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that means in terms of locating specific devices, like maybe something that was stolen, or even doing something like geocaching or a CTF where someone needs to find a certain network. Yeah, so an idea that you mentioned to me before the podcast, one of them was sort of a hide-and-seek game that you could play using Wi-Fi devices where one person could have more driving set up, like on a Raspberry Pi or something, and then you could have another device set up, like maybe just your cell phone or a laptop or something, and you could just try to find the other person, kind of like geocaching except actively, where the other person could be moving around. You could also use it to find, for example, if someone's nearby you that you know, like if you know your friend's MAC address of their phone, you could use that to detect if they're in proximity of you, mm. or you could detect if someone you don't like is near you. So a friend detector or an enemy detector. Yes. And that's cool, because that actually ties into what we're talking about for the Creep Detector, which is the project that we collaborated on that is able to detect a little bit more than just individual devices. So that's pretty interesting. And of course, you're also getting all the information, like you said, about encryption. So if you wanted to, let's say, skate around Boeing's campus and find all the printers that have open Wi-Fi networks and just, uh, let's say, print out a bunch of documents, is that something you could do? Yes, I could do that. I actually did that in my neighborhood and I found like four unsecured printers and a few open Wi-Fi networks and I might have done something. <laughs> I I also heard that a friend of mine might have done something, but of course we would never do that. But we don't do illegal stuff, no. Of course, but the risk, of course, exists that if you leave your printer wide open to the you know anybody who happens to be skateboarding around, it's not outside the realm of possibility that someone with you know just a hundred bucks and a skateboard might skateboard around your neighborhood and identify that they could either access the internet through your open Wi-Fi or print stuff out or even go through the printer cache of your printer. So if you ever printed out anything that's, I don't know, private or that you wouldn't want anyone else going through, then you probably shouldn't leave your printer wide open because it's one of those devices that's just really, really easy to spot when you're doing this sort of war driving stuff. Now, there's another example I can't talk about, but there's all sorts of reasons why devices that create their own Wi-Fi hotspot for you to connect to, all sorts of products that do that, might be really easy to identify. So the war driving skateboard is a a really cool concept, because if you know what you're looking for, like a a specific vendor that has a MAC address that's predictable, you can use something like a, a regular expression to just find every device that's within that MAC address range, meaning you could skateboard around an entire neighborhood and identify every house that has a particular type of device that's from a specific vendor, which has been useful for a variety of different things, like maybe even finding, uh, you know, known vulnerable devices, like let's say a Samsung TV with a horrible vulnerability. I guess you could probably just skate around looking for Samsung TV devices and eventually stumble on enough of them to do some experiments. Yeah. Another thing that we were talking about is also police body cameras, the Axon ones. You said they create Wi-Fi access points and they also have Bluetooth built in. And I'm also pretty sure they have unique MAC addresses. So hypothetically, we could detect if cops are nearby using war driving data. 
That's super interesting. Of course, there's multiple different sources of data when you're looking at someone like a police officer where they have the body camera that has both Bluetooth and Wi-Fi for them to connect to it. And I've actually interviewed uh, someone at Axon before talking about the cameras. And one thing that's really interesting about them is they never change their MAC address. So while many devices use something called MAC address randomization to make sure that they're not easy to track by something like Kismet, they basically change their MAC address to a fake one and continually rotate it in order to evade that sort of surveillance. There's other devices that just don't do that, like your headphones or a police body camera or all sorts of other stuff that really aren't as active as a phone. These devices frequently don't have the security built in to evade detection, so uh, or at least surveillance, like the kind that Alex is talking about. So it's pretty interesting that you could do things like identify cars by their Bluetooth stereo or identify police officers by their Bluetooth cameras. All these things make it pretty easy to identify the stuff that's around us once we know a little bit about the manufacturer. Because in general, the first half of the MAC address is set by the manufacturer. So if you're Axon, you get a certain range of MAC addresses you're able to have your devices appear as. So if we know what that range is, we can just write a program that only looks for devices in that range, and boom, we've got a police body camera detector. It's also worth pointing out that I believe that Kismet now supports Bluetooth, right? Yeah, they do. I think they also support Bluetooth low energy, which is useful for cell phones, because even if you shut them down to avoid sending out probe frames or having your Bluetooth address show up, lots of phones still emit Bluetooth low energy, so you could still sniff that and detect cell phones. Are there any phones in particular that are extra bad at this? Yeah, the iPhone. Even if you shut off your Wi-Fi and your Bluetooth, it still emits Bluetooth low energy, and you're able to pick that up. I haven't experimented with that yet, but I've heard a lot about it. That's interesting. So if an iPhone isn't using, for example, MAC address randomization, it would be pretty easy to track using something passive like a war driving skateboard. Yeah. Well, that's pretty spooky. I also know that a lot of the time, devices like an iPhone will broadcast their name, which is frequently just the first and last name of the owner. So all these are different ways where if, for example, someone was creating a hotspot on their phone where they're temporarily using their Wi-Fi, I mean, especially if it's just their name, you would be able to track all the different locations that they popped up their hotspot with this via Wiggle. Yeah. So that's one thing worth keeping in mind. If you use your hotspot all the time and it's just your first and last name, might not be the best idea. Not only are you going to show up everywhere that you've used that hotspot and someone has war driven by you, which admittedly might not be the most common thing, but also it means that your first and last name might be tied to locations that you visit frequently. So for someone who knows about wiggle.net, or knows what your first and last name is, and the fact that you maybe have an iPhone, these pre-formatted hotspots that include personal information might be a little bit more revealing than you think when they end up placed on a map somewhere. So this kind of segues into our next use case, which was the creep detector. So after you built the Wi-Fi war driving skateboard, you kind of have a lot of data to work with. You could focus on client devices, you could focus on stolen devices, let's say your laptop gets stolen and you want to drive around the city looking for it connected to a network. All that stuff is possible, but you decided, or we decided, I guess, when we were collaborating, that we should try to use it to detect creeps. How would that work, and can you describe the scenario where it would be useful? So the way that the creep detector works, first off, it pulls data from Kismet. So after your war driving session, you can just take all the data that Kismet outputs, 
which are a variety of XML files. There's like net XML, GPS XML, and they all have data about GPS locations and Wi-Fi devices spotted. You can take that and put it into the creep detector, which is a Python utility that I wrote. And basically, it strips all the data from those XML files, and it parses them to pick up duplicates of where a device was spotted more than once within a certain range. So basically, if someone's been following you, you can detect this based off how many times you've seen them within a certain threshold range of like a quarter mile or whatever. And you can plot this on a map to see where they've been following you, how long, and information about the threat. Whoa, so this is getting outside of just word driving, and this is a little bit more like signals intelligence. Yeah. So we're basically then taking the information that we've done via word driving, and uh, we're looking at it and looking for specific patterns in which a rule is uh, applied. So in this case, the rule is, have we seen this particular device outside of a range that would make sense for you know just common Wi-Fi broadcasting range? So you know if there's a let's say that there's a cell phone that's in range of us and maybe we just have a lot of line of sight. It's at the top of a hill. It makes sense that we might continue to see that cell phone for about maybe half a block or so. But if we see that that cell phone maybe a quarter mile away or maybe even further, like a mile away, it's probably not the same cell phone or that cell phone's been following us and ended up in the same location. So aside from coincidences like, you know, like a traffic jam where you just happen to be in the same place as other people uh, for a very long time while you're going over a longer distance, or something where maybe you just end up at the same location as someone else who took a different route, there shouldn't be a lot of cases where the same client device is showing up really far away uh, because that's an indication that someone might be following you. Yeah, right. Definitely not at all. So we created that portable Wi-Fi access point, like the test one with the ESP8266, which you followed me around in to see if we could pick that up. And there definitely wasn't a coincidence there because we were also able to pick up your phone and my phone as well, which was unintended, but still pretty cool. And one of the weird anomalies that I found was we also found a Wi-Fi printer that was following us. I don't know. <laughs> the strongest Wi-Fi printer of all, kept in someone's attic yes. and broadcasting like a lighthouse. Well, that's a okay. So that's a great scenario to describe. So when we were testing this out, and there's a great video of this on Veronis, if you'd like to check it out. What we were looking to do was see if we could basically follow Alex, so like appear in two different locations that were too far apart to be a coincidence, and see if his creep detector was able to spot us. So I wanted to really make sure that we were playing it safe. So I created a Wi-Fi hotspot. So we actually had you know an access point that was following him around using an ESP8266. But I also had my cell phone. And my cell phone wasn't connected to any Wi-Fi networks. It was just there. And I happened to know that that particular cell phone, which was a, a Samsung Galaxy, I believe it's an S8 or something, that cell phone doesn't seem to randomize its MAC address. So in our test, we had Alex skate from one park to another park. And then I waited in one park and then got in a car and drove to the second park and set up there. And what we found was that not only was his creep detector able to spot the Wi-Fi access point we were creating, which we expected, it also was able to detect the cell phones of our crew, which was really cool because that's what we were hoping for. So we're able to now spot maybe someone in a car that is following 
Alex on his skateboard, or even just weird coincidences, like maybe somebody showing up at the same places that he goes to. I mean, theoretically, we would be able to run this all day. And then at the end of the day, spot all the different locations where someone had either been following us or that had kind of appeared at multiple points of the day. So this might be an indication of someone that we didn't even see being close to us that just happens to either have a very similar route or might be just really good at following us without being seen. So based on all that, what kind of behavior could the creep detector spot? The creep detector could be used to detect cars that are following you, people following you. Printers following you. You can Yes. <laughs> you could see just basically if devices were spotted more than a few times within a certain range, you could see where they were spotted at, the path that they took. You could basically pick up any device that creates Wi-Fi hotspots or just is a wireless device like cell phones. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So then you're not only seeing that someone was following you, but you're also seeing the route that they were following you on and then the specific locations where they, they were appearing. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. And currently, we're mostly focusing on Wi-Fi here, but could you also tweak it to do other interesting things like focus on Bluetooth or or really where could you push this? Yeah, Bluetooth is definitely the most viable option right now, especially since a lot of integrated IoT platforms like the Raspberry Pi now have built-in Bluetooth. Also, the Wiggle app on cell phones now for Android also supports Bluetooth, so you could pick up Bluetooth devices that are nearby. And yeah, that's actually a really great point because you mentioned the Raspberry Pi setup and needing a couple of things to get started. But if you're interested in this sort of thing, you just need an Android phone and it could be a really, really, really bad Android phone because really the only thing it needs is GPS uh, and Wi-Fi. And if it has those two things, then it should be able to run Wiggle Wi-Fi. You don't need to have it rooted or anything to do that. And this will output your own files that you can basically go through using your own programs. Again, we just use Python in order to do this. And it, it makes it so easy to start cutting through this data that you can get literally just by walking or driving around. Yeah. One of the things that I'd like to work on, though, for the creep detector, it currently doesn't do live detection, so you have to take the output files and stick them through Python and parse them. But I talked to the guy who developed Kismet, and he said he's actually working on implementing a feature for that. Wow, that's really cool. I mean, the point also is that anybody who's really interested in working with this data or coming up with a really interesting use case can end up maybe getting it included in the main product. So uh, that's pretty encouraging for anybody who might want to see if you know, a particular application they're interested in is possible with all this sort of thing, and then hopefully be able to get it so that anyone can take advantage of it. So I guess we can maybe look forward to the creep detector being a live option in Kismet so that it can start flagging devices that are following you over a certain geographic area. All right, so that is a lot to do. And we talked about all the different things that you needed in order to kind of take just this project that's out there for anyone to use and turn it into your own kind of signals intelligence platform. What did you need in terms of skills to make this project happen? For the creep detector, it was mostly software based because it was written afterwards and we would use it to parse through the Kismet files. So we're actually using Python running in Jupyter Notebook. Some of the libraries we're using include Pandas, which is for rendering data tables. Folium, which is a mapping software based off Leaflet, which is a JS library for open source mapping. Also, I had to know how to use regex to parse through MAC addresses. 
and element tree, which is for XML parsing. And that's for the format that uh, Kismet outputs to, right? Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, if you want to get started with this sort of thing, if you know a little bit of Python, then Jupyter Notebook is, I mean, you, Alex, you didn't know Jupyter Notebook before starting this project, right? Never even heard of it. <laughs> Can you, what would you say about Jupyter now having tried it for a while? It's really good for presenting data to people. It looks really professional. Like if you want to show someone your code, it's kind of sketchy to just pull it up in terminal or VS code or something. But Jupyter Notebook's like a really presentable way to show data to people. And also it's really cool because you can render like you can render graphs, 3D objects, maps like for the creep detector inside of it, which you can't do if you're like running Python command line based. Right. The another another thing I really like about it is when you and I were collaborating on this project and you were showing me different iterations, the format that it outputs, the the notebook format, is actually able to be rendered natively in GitHub. So if you're sharing this with other people and you want them to see your code plus a bunch of fancy like graphs and stuff, you can just export your Jupyter notebook and upload it to GitHub and it looks really, really nice. And people can then just download it, run their own code in the cells, and theoretically it should work just fine. So Again, you also mentioned a couple other libraries where if you wanted to get started, Folium and Pandas are really where we were able to get this project up and running, just because Folium is such an easy way of visualizing geographic data. And Pandas just makes it super easy to take the format that we got from Kismet and start working with it in various ways to start mining for patterns or applying rules to it. So if you're a beginner that's interested in getting started with sort of wireless projects, signals intelligence with Wi-Fi, really look into Python, look into Jupyter, uh, and then look into using libraries like Folium and Pandas in order to make this process just a lot easier because people have already done a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to writing uh, different functions to parse the data from Kismet. So it's a lot easier than it used to be in order to you know be able to uh, get started writing this sort of stuff. So that's a lot. And the creep detector is a really cool project. It looks like you've done a lot in Python. So what comes next for you? What are you interested in doing with Python? Or what are you interested in doing with the security research in general? As for programming and for Python, I'm interested in creating my own tools. Because right now I'm learning the basics of networking. And I'm messing around with a lot of libraries in Python like Socket. I'm actually doing a programming competition right now where you have to create, recreate a variety of hacking tools that are already out there, like Netcat and Map, using only Python. Wow. So you're basically getting a, a tool that already exists, and you have to break down the functionality and then create your own version of Python? Yeah. Python is also a really great way to get started and to like reverse engineer these tools and figure out how to make your own and to really understand like the intricacies of how these tools that already exist operate. Wow. That sounds like a, a good way for beginners to get started in that. How would someone who is interested in these sorts of competitions or other beginners start finding things like this to participate in? You should definitely get started with learning programming because that teaches you a lot of just logic-based thinking that you have to know. And a lot of hacking comes down to just understanding logic. It's not about just using tools. And then for your future projects, do you have any particular ideas in mind? I'm definitely trying to move towards really cheap microcontrollers and small projects. Like I'm trying to port the creep detector to an ESP8266, which I mentioned earlier. So there's that project that I started called the ESP Drive-By, which is basically just the AuditPy war driving skateboard, except condensed into a platform that's like 
the size of half my hand. <laughs> <laughs> and it's cheap too, right? What's the total cost yeah. of that project? Yeah. It's like sub $50 and it could get cheaper if I start manufacturing PCBs for it and 3D printing my own stuff. Because right now I'm outsourcing a lot of the files. So, wow. Okay, so you're not only interested in software, you also do hardware stuff as well. Just how how did you get started with that? Actually, back in sixth grade, as a Christmas present, my dad bought me this Elenco radio soldering kit where you could assemble your own radio from scratch. And... It really intrigued me, but I had no clue how to solder. I didn't even know what all the electronic components were. (laughs) But I was always just flipping through the manual and trying to understand the schematics and stuff. And that was really cool. And then I think sometime like two years ago, I started working on a science fair project so that I could teach myself electronics. And my parents funded me for that, of course. So I bought a ton of stuff. I bought breadboards, wires random microcontrollers and stuff, and I started teaching myself in Arduino. How did it, were just online, or were you in a class, or? All online. I'm mostly self-taught. What are your best resources? What would you recommend to someone else who is uh, looking to be self-taught, too? Nullbyte. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nullbyte, that's actually where I started learning a lot of the hacking stuff I know. Forum boards are really useful, looking at old posts like Stack Overflow. I think the most vital thing for me was reverse engineering, looking at what other people have created and just trying to duplicate their project and just get it running first and then slowly remove components from it that you don't understand and tweak them to make them your own and sort of break it down for yourself. That's a really good approach. I like that a lot. And I know you were also working on a more simple project before that didn't involve Wi-Fi. That was the mini TV be gone. Oh yeah. So Adafruit sells this kit for a TV be gone, that's pretty expensive. It's like 15 bucks. It's basically just a device that turns off TVs by brute forcing a bunch of IR codes to them to turn them on or off. And basically, I didn't want to buy one of those, so I created my own from scratch on just a piece of perf board. And you could check out my documentation on my website for that. But right now, I'm working on developing like a really, really small version of the TV be gone that's like quarter sized and runs off a 2032 coin cell battery. And this is, you're fabricating your own board for it? Yeah, I'm trying to find a place that I can manufacture PCBs for it. And I'm thinking of actually cutting my own on the school's CNC mill for robotics. <laughs> That's crazy. So if you were going to give advice to someone who wanted to get into hardware that way, how do you fab boards? Do you use a program that's easy, or, or would you recommend something for people who wanted to maybe make their first printed circuit board? EasyEDA, which is a website you can check out at EasyEDA.com. They have a whole suite of development tools for creating hardware. Like you could create PCBs. I actually think that's the extent of it. Yeah, you can create PCBs, schematics, and other designs for electronics. And it's a really easy way to get started designing circuit boards. And there's, there's a ton of tutorials out there for how to use that. That's cool. That's really cool. And Of course, most of your projects seem to involve Wi-Fi. Wasn't there also a directional antenna-based project you were working on? Yeah, so this is another one of the projects that I haven't completed because I don't have the funds for it. But I'm trying to create basically a servo antenna. So it's called the Cantenna because it uses a can as a directional antenna. And basically it's just a servo motor that's strapped to this Cantenna and it spins around as a directional antenna to pick up Wi-Fi at really long ranges. 
So this would because it's using a directional antenna, it's able to scan around and find the strongest signal strength, or or what's the goal for it? The goal is just to be able to, you know, like hack Wi-Fi at a long range. Like maybe you're in your house, but you know there's an open Wi-Fi network that's down the block, but you can't just go there and sit there. You can use the Cantana for this. Oh, very cool, very cool. So it's a self-adjusting yeah. antenna that's able to point its directionality wherever there's a good signal. Nice. Yeah. Another thing that I remembered you mentioned about this project once was you said we could use this to just spin around and connect to the strongest Wi-Fi network if we have compromised a few of them. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. So if you were someone who was trying to be anonymous and you had a couple different Wi-Fi networks that you had access to, then you could basically rotate through each one by just kind of switching the signal around uh, to make it harder to tell where you were. Yeah, that's a pretty good application of the Cantena, if a little evil. <laughs> So this is pretty inspiring for someone. For example, I went back to school for programming, printed circuit board design, and and all this other stuff two years ago. And I still feel like you know a lot more than I do when it comes to creating circuit boards and some of the aspects of programming, just because you've been kind of pushing towards this for a while now, because it's something you're passionate about. If there was someone else who is in a similar situation as you, where maybe they don't have the best funding, maybe they don't have the best support, uh, maybe they're not taken seriously when they're asked questions in their community, what would you tell them or what advice would you give them in order to get started with the kind of stuff that you're doing? Probably the most important thing to understand is that you have to have self-motivation to push yourself forward in all computer science fields because most of it is going to be just whether or not you're passionate about learning this stuff. It's not really something that you can learn by just going to school and studying like traditional schoolwork or coursework. And a lot of it is going to be research that you're doing on the side on your own. So if you're not set up with a school that's going to teach you exactly what you want to learn and you're trying to learn something that's outside of that, the best thing to do is be proactive and I guess not get Mm -hmm. discouraged even if you get suspended a time or two for learning programming or grafting Wi-Fi into a calculator. So the last thing I want to cover is you're a little bit unusual in that you actually, you you don't just, you know, create your own projects and sit there and feel great about them. You don't even just show off your projects. You actually teach other people how to do them. Um, why is it important to you to share your projects that way? And why do you have uh, yeah, a YouTube channel and put out your projects in this format that other people can kind of replicate and follow along with? For me, when I was a beginner, it was really frustrating to not be able to find the resources I needed to create stuff and to just having to like scavenge the internet for scarce documentation on a project that I'd want to work on or learning about how to code. So after I would encounter a problem and I figured out how to fix it and I felt like it's really relatable, I tried to create videos or documentation on how I was able to do that thing. And it looks like it helped a lot of people based off some of the comments I've seen on a few of my videos. Yeah, well, in general, it's pretty difficult to find someone who's willing to take the time to not only document their stuff well, but then appear on camera explaining it in a way that makes sense that isn't, you know, maybe just text over screaming techno music. So I've noticed that a lot of people have found your content really helpful because it's from the perspective of a beginner. It's not gatekeeping. It doesn't assume that you already know everything. And it really, you know, it's kind of just sharing the best of what you've learned with your community, which I think is really noble because it's the only, it's the only way that other people like you are going to be able to take on this stuff themselves. Yeah, I'm a big advocate for open source, and I think it's really something that's driving the hacking community forward. So I guess uh, 
based on your experience then, if there was someone who had their own project that they were excited about or they wanted to share or they wanted other people to be able to take advantage of too in that kind of open source community spirit, where would they get started? Do you mean like if they have created their own project and they want to link up with the security community? Yeah, like if if they want to if they want to be more like you in terms of being a part of the security community, even if they might not be plugged in locally, you know, how do they get started being a a part of something bigger than themselves uh, when it comes to this community? Right now, the most viable and easy option that a lot of people are taking advantage of is social media, even to people who are not even doing security stuff. You know, you could just advertise literally anything on there. So, for example, just posting your projects to Instagram, which is basically what I did a few years ago, and that's how I found you. (laughs) You know, Twitter, all sorts of these platforms are out there to share your data. And a really important thing is metadata, so including stuff like hashtags on your posts, help with search engine optimization so that the algorithm can help other people who are interested to find your stuff. And also, other websites that are more tuned towards the hacking community, like Hackster.io or Hackaday, those are also really resourceful for um, uploading stuff. I definitely agree. And I, I think one of the the bad things that people do when they're first getting started with hacking is imposter syndrome. You know, they write their first script, they do their first hardware project, and they're like, uh, this is 90% other people's code. You know, I, I've got it to do something cool, but I don't want to show it off. I found that in general, you start attracting people who wish they had the time or wish they had the the dedication to do that little thing that you did. And it just gets you started with people who love the same thing. And that makes it so much easier to work on something that might be tedious or uh, time consuming or throw up all these challenges that, you know, most people just wouldn't have the perseverance to get through. Having people that appreciate what you're doing, I think is a huge, huge, huge motivator for anybody that's you know needing to to do this sort of thing. I feel documentation is also really important. Like you said, even creating the most little thing, I think you should document it, even if it's just for yourself, because that helps you to see what you've done and maybe in the future look over and go, wow, I actually have learned a lot since then. And it really helped me. That's amazing. So in the future, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, Are you going to continue with your website? Should we check out your YouTube? What's the best way to keep up with the projects that you're working on in the future? For my project updates, you can check out my Twitter. I also have like 20 concurrent projects that are going on right now. <laughs> and I'm trying, to film, I'm trying to film content for them for YouTube. So hopefully I have stuff coming out for that soon. So you can check me out at Twitter at Alex Lind, which is L-Y-N-D. You can also check out my YouTube channel at the same name. And then you can also see my website at alexlind.com if you want to see blog posts, documentation on projects I've been working on and other cool stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate getting the perspective of a beginner who's just jumping into the community, because I think it's going to benefit a lot of people who might be on the periphery and have always wanted to get involved, but maybe not felt like they were going to be welcomed with open arms. I mean, you're definitely someone who has been welcomed because you contribute a tremendous amount to this community. So thank you for taking time to talk with us today. And I'm looking forward to see what you're going to work on in the future. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Cody. Cool. All right. Well, good luck on your final. (laughs) And... Thank you to all of our listeners for checking out this episode of the Verona Security Tools podcast. Make sure to check out our awesome resources for keeping your data secure with our attack workshop. And yeah, thanks for checking us out. We'll see you next time.